You and I have been friends for a long time, but I know in my heart that I've always needed you more than you've ever needed me. And I'll miss our time together more than I can say. But you know what? There will be a new day and eventually a new year. And when the upcoming winter gives way to spring, oh, rest assured, once again, it will be time for Dodger baseball. So this is Vin Scully wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon wherever you may be. Live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center, it's Cofield and Company. Here it is, 5 o'clock hour. Celebrating the life of uh, Vin Scully, who passed away last night at 94 years old. 67 years, the voice of the L.A. Dodgers. More of his great highlights coming up later this hour. Another really good play-by-play voice, John Sandler, will join us. He's a Southern California native. That'll be around 5.30 to talk about the life and times of Vin Scully and just what a a swell dude he was to everyone, to everyone, right? That's rare, right? It's very rare, right, Willie? You and I are, you know, some of our first meetings. Wasn't I a sweetheart to you? Curmudgeon. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, boy. I'm not going to get any of these stories when I'm gone. None of them. He was great. Especially the first time when you met him. But I'm glad you brought it up. You brought it up a couple months ago. You were like, what was your problem scoffing at me back in whatever, 2008? Shake his head in disgust and move on. Things come full circle. Willie Ramirez is the company. Ari is back in her Finley Toyota studios. You heard it. Battleborn Broadcast Center. Thanks to the folks here at Battleborn Injury Lawyers. 570-9000 is the number to call Justin or Matt for help. Big five time. Battleborn Injury Lawyers presents the Big Five at Five, number five. Okay, so what's the update on Albuquerque and the Breaking Bad statues? This is really going to happen? I think it's already happened. Okay. From my understanding, there's a bronze Breaking Bad statue of the main characters. I'm not sure where it's at. We'll have to check with our good friend Jeff Grammer down there. But I saw this. And so it was a lady tweeted, just said, what if we kissed in front of the bronze Breaking Bad statues in New Mexico? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, for seven, eight years, whatever it was, James Gandolfini, Tony Sirico, the boys, Kearney, New Jersey, Lodi. Where's the statues of Tony Soprano and Paulie Walnuts? Why can't they put it right next to the Costello statue at Lou Costello Memorial Park? You're a Jersey guy. Can you do something about this? It's actually kind of interesting because, one, I was going to bang on Albuquerque for, like, this is all they have, which is not true. They actually have a lot of beautiful statues and parks and a lot of history in Albuquerque. Uh, These statues for Walter White and uh, his running mate, Jesse Pinkman, are actually pretty cool looking. They are. Um, but it's, you know, it's characters based on a move, uh, movie, uh, check that, series about criminals, meth dealers, right? right? And in the same way, hey, organized criminals, organized crime, Tony Soprano and, and Paulie Walnuts, like, would it be a touchy subject to glamorize those characters? Rocky. Rocky. Stallone has had a statue in Philly. Now they've moved it. But the Stallone statue is actually one of the big Philly landmarks. And I think people have mocked on that at times. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, could no. they? Could they? Put, I don't know where they would put up a uh, a statue, well, where a I soprano think, statue in New Jersey. By the way, it's Carney, New Jersey. Carney, sorry. Yeah, it's all right. You're not where, gonna know every, I don't know every, where every I think city they should put it because if I'm not mistaken, the, the the building that Satrials was 
was filmed in front when right. they sit out front right. has been raised so it's demolished yeah i don't know if something's been rebuilt there but i do know that right next to it there was that there was like an empty lot so it was already built to be a parking lot i mean and up the street from there was the church that they filmed it all there was a lot of things filmed right on that road and i can't think it escapes me because we drove by it when we did the sopranos tour but there were a lot of different scenes filmed up and down that road somewhere on that road they could put is it. the strip club that they used for the bada bing is that still there satin dolls yeah yeah but it's a it's a like a real oh i don't even know if it's a dumpy area it's in a very industrialized area kind of muddy you're gonna throw a statue there well you i would think that you put it somewhere where the tour stops because the tour goes it goes there it drives by pizza land it doesn't stop there but it stops at satin dolls uh real quick i'll tell you so we go on no satin stops at satin dolls we go well we go on the tour right and so we're going in and you know it's not it's it's not topless they're in oh, I'm, I'm well aware let's not have a whole discussion about okay, so, what a screw so, job customers get in uh, in Jersey when it comes to the clubs okay so wait so they're like it's a bar though yeah. so the tour stops in and I'm with Jordan and then and with another person that was with, on the trip with us right yeah. so so I convinced them I was like look man He'll sit. So there's some stairs where you walk in. The door that they always show Chris comes storming in, or Polly comes storming in. Um, that's how you. That's the door we came in. Well, there were some stairs just to the right, and they said, "Well, okay, if you go, have them go stand up those stairs and out of the way." And I convinced them to let Jordan come walking in there during the tour. We went there. We went to Holstein's. Got to go into Holstein's. They bring the tour in there, and they got. And when you walk in, they have onion rings lined up waiting for you. As you can tell, we could talk Sopranos on every show Willie's on, and I'm sure. I went back and I started watching Sopranos. I'm like towards the middle, late part of season two. Uh, it's it's epic between Janice the sister, his kids are a giant pain in the ass, Richie April, Matthew Bevilacqua. Like I I remember watching it back then, and I'm like I want everyone in this season to die except the main characters. They're so hateable. It's friggin' awesome. Number four. Boy, good call last night. I saw you uh, sending out the number in the Mystics and Aces, and you're like, yeah, this is not going to be an easy game for the Aces, and it wasn't. I was shocked. They were laying points on the road, and then I think they bet it down a little bit. There was some there was some action, I mean, among WNBA betters, but Washington's a dangerous team. I mean, they're the best defensive team in the WNBA. They have championship pedigree with Natasha Cloud, Elena Deladon. Got one of the top rookies. I mean, this is a very talented squad. The Aces have been on the road for a bit. And, you know, they're coming out of playing the worst team in the league. That's not an easy jump. You go from one caliber of play to the next. And one of the things that I sort of I started real quick, I was adding up during the Zoom press conference, was how this team has been performing against different parts of the, of the league. Against losing teams or teams with a losing record even and, and you know there's only five winning teams in the WNBA the rest have losing records the top eight make the playoffs 18 and three against losing teams against teams with a winning record Chicago Connecticut Washington and Seattle the aces are four and six they've lost five of their last six against the teams with winning records. Washington swept them. They've split with Seattle. They split with Chicago, and they won the season series with Connecticut 2-1. to one. So I asked Becky Hammond that. 
you know, I said, is that something to be concerned with? Because the broadcast team, Chris DeBlanc and Carolyn Peck, they pointed out, hey, maybe it's setting up to sort of be battle-tested for the playoffs. And I asked Chelsea Gray that. I don't think that either one they did they weren't rude, but I just got a, I detected that they didn't appreciate pointing me pointing that out. So what do I say all the time? Sometimes subjects of interviews don't like malicious facts. Number three. Joey Gallo on the move from the Yankees to the Dodgers, hometown hero, Gorman guy, had a rough go of it in New York. And we you know, we had talked about a conversation yesterday that Gallo had before he left with uh, the Northern New Jersey paper, the star ledger saying that he really didn't even go outside when he lived in Manhattan. He was, you know, just kind of embarrassed by his performance and didn't want to get, you know, yelled at. And he said, you know, some people came up to him and were busting his chops. You know, the funny thing on this is that that story was commented on, on a thread yesterday uh, after he was traded uh, on Twitter. And the person who put the story up was like, you know, this is the bad side of Yankee fans. That's a little out of control if the guy's afraid to live his life. And I swear, it was like half the comments were like, screw him. Or, or that didn't happen. No one would walk up on a guy who's 6'5", 235 and say something. Really? You don't think so? Stop. The dude's not lying. There's no reason to lie. It was a rough experience for him. And for Yankee fans to puff out their chest and go, you know, he, he couldn't make it here. Screw him. Screw you. And that, by the way, it's not all Yankee fans who are like that, but um, New Jersey folks, New York folks, that tri-state area, the folks who take pride in being pricks to athletes, cut it out. All right. It's, you know, it, it, this is all here for enjoyment because you know, other people are like, well, you knew what he was, knew what he was walking into, making a lot of money. Shut up. I was listening to a show early this morning because for some reason, I don't know why, but the early morning show, the wee hour morning show was not on today. I don't know why. Um, so I was switching through the channels to find something to listen to while I was doing some writing. I think it was it's called Boomer and Geo, Boomer Esiason Show or something. Is it's a morning show on WFN in New York. Yeah, so they weren't on. They were some guests. But anyway, at some point they were talking about it. They were like, well, let's just put it with it. Let's just say what it is. Joey Gallo's not a good baseball player. In my mind, I'm going, dude, there, he's in the majors. He may not have been performing up to task in New York, but something, it doesn't make him a bad baseball a two-time, player. Two-time, like, 40 homer guy or two-time 35 homer guy. Like, he – it didn't it work. It just didn't work. It didn't work, and it didn't he's, work. He's, in a, he's in an elongated slump, and I think he and will gonna, bounce back, and I think he'll do some things for the Dodgers. And I He'll think, be fine. And here's the thing. You talked about the, the, the environment, right? And maybe it's not for him. The Big Apple's not for a lot of people, whether it's pro sports, the media, right? A lot of people, media members can't, you know, deal with it. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's strange of me to think this, but being the optimist, but he's coming to the closest place to his hometown. Could it possibly play a positive, sort of a breath of fresh air? He's, yes. he's right across the border from his home. Yes. Yes, I love I love baseball talk where people are like he's not a very good baseball player. And by the way, he's hit 41, 40, and thirty eight homers in three different seasons. He'll be fine. It just didn't work out. Number two. Everyone, calm down. Everyone, calm down. Really? I saw a message today from Albert Breer on Tom Brady. So. You know, Brady's got a little bit of the attention in the Tom Brady tampering case that cost the Dolphins a million and a half dollar fine and a first and a third round pick. But I'm not sure that we focus enough on him yesterday. Breer said, so let me get this straight. Patriots used Tom Brady's draft position to leverage 20 years of discounts out of him. He took them 
giving the team a massive competitive advantage. Uh, then they did it one too many times. He started looking around, and Brady's the bad guy. Well, yeah, a little bit. If he was still under contract with the Patriots, if the football team is reaching out to him and they're convicted of tampering, then yeah, the player who's talking to that team is a bit culpable. Should Brady have turned in the Dolphins well, not on, on both occasions to the league? Well, no, because if you're saying that he's culpable, if, that, if, if he was talking to them and they were talking to him... He was going into his last season with the Patriots right. when he was talking to the Dolphins. He was talking to them. Just he, they was, they were, he was reciprocating the conversation. Right. Yeah. So why would he turn them in? He's just as guilty. So then, yeah, he should have turned him in, but he decided that he was, was guilty. Fi- he was fine with the tampering. Okay, but which is by, bull crap. But by we're turning, on the, we're on the same team here. Yeah, okay. that Brady did something wrong. He did something wrong, but right. I don't think he should have turned the Dolphins in because he was just as guilty. That's like you and I, okay, you and I are going to conspire, right. but I'm going to go turn you in. Right. Okay, come on now. He's a snitch. That makes him a snitch. And, and he wouldn't have done it in 2019 because clearly they said something that interested him in another conversation when he was with the Bucks that involved ownership. Yeah. Which, by the way, is not even that's that's not even a legitimate conversation. You can't get ownership while you're playing. So, are you supposed to be lining up future ownership with your new team? This is, that's by the way, this is something we always talked about. All those discounts that Breer just pointed to, yeah. that there had to be some something behind the scenes with the Patriots. Some kind of sweetheart deal. Now, I have no idea where he's going to land. I mean, it, this, this, this is a fact. I really want to hear from an NFL insider maybe a couple years from now. Because, the 30 for 30 will be fantastic. <laughs> it will if it gets to a lot of this stuff, right? And, and, and again, you know what this is, what's great about this is, you remember when it was Seth Wickersham, who wrote about the deteriorating relationship with Brady and Belichick and Kraft. And the all like majority of the Patriot fans were like, fake news, not happening. You don't think it was happening? Now, I mean, is this more proof? He's basically talking behind the Patriots back, lining up his future when he wasn't even done with the Patriots yet and a division rival. Right. He, he, was, he was in the wrong, but I still don't think that he should be snitching. He shouldn't have been snitching. That would have been wrong of him. Number one. All right, tomorrow's a Hall of Fame game for the Raiders, Raiders, Jaguars. They're not going to play a ton of their most important players. So what's McDaniels looking for? I think he's going to be looking strictly at the offensive line because, as we spoke of earlier, he's got to rotate certain number of guys there. And for as much as we've talked about and belabored the point that, okay, who's playing where? Who's playing this? This guy's third reps. This guy's first reps. I mean, it's there's been so much rotation in the first – week and a half or so of camp and the first several days of pads that he's got to at some play at some point play a rotation of guys on the offensive line that will be seeing significant playing time during the regular season there's going to be a lineup in there it may not be all five guys but he's going to have some guys in there at a specific time that's going to have to protect whoever he has under center and protect whoever he has in the backfield and i think second will be that backfield that's the running back room of right the committee running back by committee. So if he doesn't start Josh Jacobs, if he sits him and Derek Carr, you still have a rotation of guys who have had some experience. I, I can't imagine Zamir White. We haven't seen him. So I can't imagine he's going to be available. But the other guys. So I mean, maybe what the offense is going to do with what you know the schematics of his offensive system with whatever he decides to put out there. But I think it starts on the front.
It's the Big Five at Five, brought to you by Battle Born Injury Lawyers. If you've been injured, call Justin Watkins at Battle Born Injury Lawyers, 570-9000. And all year long, he answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs, the bad left hamstring and the swollen right knee. Trying to catch lightning right now. Three and two. The plate. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. You are listening to Cofield and Company live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center. Yeah, it's, it's funny, Ari put in the uh, the Randy Newman there uh, underneath. You can actually hear Randy the Randy Newman I Love L.A. song. As soon as that ball went over the right field wall by Kirk Gibson, they, they cranked it up right away. And that's that's one of those moments, if you don't know, Vince Scully passed away last night. That was the voice of Vince Scully, 94 years old, 67 years, the voice of the Dodgers. That's one of those moments where everything just comes together. It's a magical moment in baseball, and then you get the best guy to do the call. Um, I saw so many people with nice words last night. For Vin Scully and uh, Doug Gottlieb, who's you know one of our favorite hosts over on Fox Sports National and our sister station Fox thirteen forty Fox Sports Las Vegas, he said uh, the greatest sports moment of my childhood sitting with my best friend Miles Simon, who played basketball at Arizona and has been an assistant around the NBA. He says who predicted the home run, uh, watching the greatest play by play man of all time, you know, and the greatest sports moment that he'd seen. He says he uh, he said rip, R.I.P. Vin. So if I can read, getting all flustered. That was a cool moment though. It's, Do you remember watching that? Did you actually watch it live? Yeah, I just can't remember where exactly because I remember the the series. I remember what I was doing in that time frame. You know what I mean? Those are those are some clubbing days. But uh, and I remember we were always watching it at a friend's. There was this Kevin, my friend Kevin, but he was living with in this like mansion of this family that he worked for Howard was the guy's name. They owned a big pest control company and we all hang out over there. And I remember we were watching that series. We had all, you know, every time there was a game, that's where we were hanging out. It was just so absurd. The whole setup. Cause the A's were awesome. Yeah. No one, no one did anything to Eckersley that whole year. And then this guy comes out, he's limping, yeah. you know, and then just flicks his left arm out, boom, over the wall. And then, of course, you know, right as Scully finishes what he's saying, that's when Gibson is starting to hit second. And he's like, boom, boom, with the right arm a couple of times, which is one of the, this like a legendary celebration, just a little action. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, Tiger Woods doing the, the fist, bump. the arm up in the yeah. air, the fist yeah. bump. I was trying to find what the odds were going into that World Series. I'll have to look it up. I was looking at Pro Baseball Reference, and a lot of times they have the odds because uh, that, that was not an, that was not a Dodgers team that had won, you know, 105 games. They had pulled the upset on the Mets. That was kind of the end of the Mets run too, you know, because the Mets were just such a dysfunctional group of lunatics that the Dodgers pulled the upset. And then uh, finally the Dodgers take care of business against the A's. So Al Michaels was on this morning on, on Fox sports, Las Vegas. And uh, there were great spots this morning on the Dan Patrick show. Yeah. I was driving around town and they had back to back Al Michaels and then, Dan Levitard, and I haven't really heard Levitard a whole bunch since he left ESPN Radio, and now he's exclusively online. But anyway, on on Michaels, 
you know, Al Michaels is a guy who's in his mid seventies, one of, you know, the Mount Rushmore guys of broadcasting. So he was talking about, uh, with Dan Patrick about Vince Gully. One of a kind, nobody like him. Can't imagine there will be anybody like him in the future. When you think about it, how many people have a job, any job or work for 67 consecutive years or have the same job for 67 consecutive years and bring it, bring it every day. Yep. Amazingly consistent. Most of the calls were perfect. The stories were awesome. It's not, not overbearing. He made generally made the right decision on when to speak and when not to speak. Um, Michael's also talked about the fact that Scully was versatile, you know, radio and then TV became bigger. Vinny made the transition perfectly. He was so descriptive, obviously, on on radio, and radio lets you use every you know verb in the dictionary. Television, you're doing a lot of captions and speaking in ellipses. The verb is visual. You can see it's a line drive, it's a pop fly, whatever it is. Uh, Vinny knew how to do it perfectly. He was he was phenomenal at that. Now teams have eight, nine, ten announcers. Guys have you know thirty eight days off and all of that. For so many years, Vinny did 162 games in every every spring training game, and they got to the playoffs and, and World Series a lot. So Vinny did everything all the time. And I'll never forget, he told me once, he said he was always hesitant to do that. He said, because if you're on too much, people won't miss you. But if you if you just do the right amount, they can't wait for you to get back. I understood that some of us in the business would be doing would be doing so many things. It's like at a certain point, you know, people are going to go him again. You know, so Vinny was always very, very cognizant of that. Cofield and Company will be back in minutes, right here on ESPN Las Vegas. Two and two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Now, back to Cofield and Company at the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. It's just so awesome. Every old call we've played today, legendary old call with Vince Gully. The call is made, he's economical with his words, and then you get the crowd. And that was a perfect game in 1965, as you heard, he time-stamped it again, Sandy Koufax against Harvey Keene. Two and two to Harvey Keene. I can't do a a Vince Scully impression. Uh, Let's talk to a professional play-by-play guy. We've been talking a lot about play-by-play today with the passing of Vince Scully. We were also just kind of joking during the break. His 67 years as the voice of the Dodgers, Willie and I are like, my God, we have to work professionally for like another 35 years to work 67 years. I don't think I want to do that. I don't think that's going to happen. But the length of his career is incredible. John Sandler's with us, voice of the Rebels, longtime voice of uh, local baseball as well. It's called football, really called everything, and is a native of Southern Californian. John, how are you? I'm okay. I'm okay, Stevie. How are you? I'm good. You know what? I, uh, I'm sure you're sad. I was really sad, and I'm not going to say there's like a cap on how long you should be sad for, but I was really sad um, reading social media and seeing all the calls for like a good two hours last night. I, uh, oh, yeah. I was, really, I was really moved by the reaction from so many people on the passing of Vince Gully. Yeah, and I don't think we should be surprised by that. I mean, obviously in the baseball world, he meant so much to so many people. But if you really kind of step back and think about it, you're talking about an American icon. This is the equivalent of, um, you know, one of the great writers in American history. Well, I mean, I'm going to say the greatest. The greatest writer in American history passing away, or the greatest artist 
in American history. This is a cultural icon, the greatest singer in American history. This is Frank Sinatra. This is, um, you know, you name it. This is, uh, um, you know, a, a, a movie star. This is, this is Clark Gable, Rock Hudson, Robert Redford, um, you know, Marilyn Monroe, wh- whomever people looked up to. Um, this is that level. And uh, I'm going to be sad for a very long time. So like you just said, he, he was a national voice. He was the voice of baseball. But for Southern Californians, this really hits uh, extra hard. So talk about your experience, like, you know, following the Dodgers, hearing this guy on radio for all those years. Well, it starts with your first Dodger game. And my first Dodger game was in the 60s. Yeah, I'm old. Um, and I remember walking through the crowd. And I'm, you know, a little kid, seven. I don't know. And thinking to myself, that's so cool that they that you can hear him everywhere. They they pipe his voice around the stadium. That's so cool. And I don't know whether it was then or a little while later, I realized that's not what was happening. It's that everybody at the stadium brought a transistor radio, and if you remember what those are, a little handheld radio, and was sitting there listening to Scully call the game while you're sitting at Dodger Stadium to the point where, and this is a true story, at one point... Early in his career in Los Angeles, he had to ask the crowd to turn down their radios because he was getting feedback. Huh. It, it, it's insane, but that's what was happening. And and you walk through the crowd at Dodger Stadium, and you know you go to a you go to a major league game now. Even you know you go to an Aviators game, you're going to hear the broadcast in the restroom and maybe at the concession stand, whatever. At Dodger Stadium, it was it was the atmosphere. It was Vin's voice, just sort of wafting through the air at the game. Players will tell you they heard it at times. It was part of the experience, the way the palm trees and the 76, Union 76 sign and all of that. That that Vin Scully's voice was part of the ambiance at Dodger State. John, you talk about cultural icon. Um, we heard a clip earlier we talked about when he called the Hank Aaron shot, 715. He called it he let it go, let you hear the, the the crowd, brought you into it, and then described everything. And one of the most poignant moments of that yep. call was when he pointed out and he said, in being celebrated, a black man in the yep. South and being revered. Let's not forget that this is a man that also called Jackie Robinson when he was in Brooklyn with the Brooklyn Dodgers. When you call him a cultural icon, he is so eloquent with his calls that he – I would have to imagine that he meant so much to the minority races that came through the sport of baseball in the way that he described them so eloquently. I'm sure he did. Obviously, I can't speak to that. Um, what you what you know is that Vin Scully had the respect of every player who came through. And as time went along, I know for a fact that there were players who would come to Dodger Stadium for the first time, and veteran players on that team would say, you need to go introduce yourself to Mr. Scully. I mean, it was that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously because of the kind of person he was, he would take the time to turn and talk, and, you know, whether he was getting information to use on his broadcast as part of the story he would tell every night, and that's what it was. It was a story every night that he told with an ending that was yet to be determined. Um, or whether he was just doing it because he was a truly nice human being, as he was when I met him uh, on the field at at Dodger Stadium, and then again at Cashman Field 
later on. Um, There was never a question that he would not treat you the way he wanted to be treated, the way you should have been treated. This was a genuinely nice and uh, appropriate human being. I would have to imagine, you know, in that story you just told in terms of like people saying, hey, you need to go introduce yourself to Mr. Scully. I remember when John Madden passed this past December and a few days later interviewing Herm Edwards after the Las Vegas Bowl. And we talked about it and he talked about when you first came into the league and your game, when you found out your game was being called by John Madden, you sort of knew that you had arrived. I would imagine for young baseball players, it would feel the same that respect that, man, I I struck out three times, but Vince Scully called it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, um, a lot of people have made that point today that, that you know, you, you it was one of the rites of passage of becoming a big leaguer of having Vince Scully, you know, call your name. Can you imagine, though, for the kids, and, and, and obviously Southern California is a hotbed of, of baseball, can you imagine for the kids who grew up in Southern California listening to him, making it to the big leagues with the Dodgers or another team, and having him call your name. That had to be just, I mean, mind-blowing. Voice of uh, UNLV Runner Rebels, John Sandler is on with us. A longtime baseball voice as well in the market. From a mechanic standpoint, I know you you know, you know, like the mechanics of play-by-play, and you think about it. From the mechanic standpoint, why was Vince Scully so good? Uh, number one, he was prepared. Uh, had, you know, and you're given, especially at the major league level, you're given just reams and reams and reams of paper. And I'm sure he did his homework through that, but he did his homework by getting on the field and talking to the players and getting to know them. And then, you know, so being prepared is number one. Number two, and I, and, and, and I probably should have made this number one, it was never about him. Yep. There are a lot of egos in this business. <laughs> and he's, he is the greatest of all time by an exponential factor. It will, you know, by light years. And, it was never about him. It was about the game. It was about the fans, and it was about the experience. And I think that made him great. Um, he had a unique ability. Baseball is a it, baseball is by far the hardest of the four major sports to to broadcast because every other sport either has enough action to fill up all the time, or has a specific rhythm. Football has a specific rhythm. You know, they break the huddle. They line up, call the signal, there's the play, and then they do it again. And, and right. uh, baseball has none of that. And he had a truly unique ability to weave his stories, his subject matter, into the flow of the game. And if the game was taking precedence at the time, the stories would take a little bit of a backseat. If the game was going a little bit slowly at the time, the stories would be amplified, but you never, ever forgot there was a game going on, or at least you tried not to. He certainly wouldn't let you, and you never missed anything. Um, but it was like going on a ride. It was like it, you really felt as if you were just sort of traveling along with him. Uh, and and I, I said it, I said it on Twitter. You know, the focus has been on these amazing calls and these tremendous events that he was associated with. You know, Gibson's home run, which was, you know, otherworldly, and Larson's perfect game, and Aaron's 715th home run, and Dwight Clark's catch, and et cetera, et cetera. But when 
and, and he rose to all those occasions and, and gave them absolutely uh, the justice they deserved and more. But I think he was at his most brilliant in a you know in the seventh inning of a six to one game in the middle of August when the Dodgers were in fourth place. He yeah. still made it must listening because of his cadence, of his tone, and of his content. It was just magic. Really good stuff. John Sandler with us. We, uh, we'll let you go here in a second, but we got some big stuff coming up for the uh, Running Rebels. You'll be on the road with Curtis Terry. We'll be broadcasting on LV Sports Network, one of our stations, all three games of the Canadian Exhibition Tour. So that's really cool. And uh, I've seen you out at practice a couple of times here. They've got 10 practices. So early on, you know, uh, again, another new look team. This is the way of the world in college basketball. Uh, what do you think so far based on what you've seen? Uh Really physical, uh, a lot of size. You've got uh, you've got men out there. I mean, some of these guys who they've brought in, uh, Elijah Parquet from Colorado, uh, Shane Noel from from Arizona. Uh, they've spent some time in the weight room, and this is a team that's going. It, it certainly defense is going to be the watchword, and they are not going to get out physical on the court. Um, I, I'm impressed by the versatility of the players. It's obviously incredibly early, the Canadian trip, and I'm so thankful to Learfield and to a couple of sponsors, um, uh, Whittlesley Bell and uh, Dr. Doug Thomas, who've, who've helped uh, sponsor this trip, um, and for UNLV to, to allow us to go and, and bring it back to the fans. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a great way to sort of introduce all of these new guys uh, to the, the fans in Las Vegas. And uh, we'll see. I mean, it, it's obviously very early, but the, the, the physicality of this group and the, yeah. the athleticism is pretty impressive. Yeah, I get the sense that uh, Kevin Kruger from a year ago, and he, he's always you know a defense-first guy, but experience in the Mountain West up close, and the team got smaller and smaller as the year went along and couldn't you know compete as much as it wanted physically against teams like Wyoming. That, that was one of the missions to go out there. Yeah. And, man, they're big and strong. And I know you love, and so does Curtis, calling Keyshawn Gilbert, you know, disruptor moments on defense. I think they're going to – I don't know if these guys can all play together, but between Keyshawn back and Eli Parquet from Colorado and then also Luis Rodriguez from Ole Miss, who is a big 6'6", that they're going to have someone who – or many guys on the floor at the same time who are disruptors who are going to be a real pain in the keister for the opposition. Absolutely, and, and, and a lot of these guys are a little bit unknown on the offensive end just because they didn't have that role wherever they were before. Um, you know, I don't know that we're going to see the sort of offensive explosion from one of these guys that we saw with Donovan Williams coming out of Texas, but I think that's an area that they need, and that's an area uh, that I think a lot of fans can look forward to, to seeing what happens there. I mean, it's going to be an entirely different approach. You're not going to be able to give the ball to Bryce and say, you know, go get me a bucket, right. uh, the, the way they, they did an awful lot last year. But it, it, it could very well be a much more balanced approach, and as a result, a much more difficult team to defend. John, you're awesome, man. We appreciate a couple minutes today. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about Scully. I, I'll do that anytime, anywhere. The greatest ever. Thanks, John. Thank you. There he is, John Sandler, voice of the Running Rebels. I just wanted to add to one thing he said about play-by-play people and how prepared Scully was. Prep is gigantic. The other thing is those stories that he told on the air and the depth of knowledge on players, that doesn't happen unless you like listening. And 
I'm telling you, as John just said, and this is not to bag on broadcasters, we all have egos. To do this, you have to have an ego. But I do know a lot of broadcasters that are mostly interested in speaking, right? They always want to be talking. And they're, they're actually broadcasters off the air. And those people bother me because at times I'm like, do you ever shut up? Like, to tell the story, you have to actually listen. And, that, and storytellers like Scully, you know, on radio or TV, and, and, and we, you know from print because you're, you're first and foremost a writer, Willie, that you have to be willing to listen, ask questions, really follow up, and not fade into your own world or worry about what you're going to say next to react. And I want to point out, when you talk about preparation, Vince Scully has been what was like he was long before there was an internet and computers there was shorthand and steno notebooks pencils and pens and notebooks long before the internet and research and google and wikipedia join the conversation on twitter at cofield and co Cofield and Company presents Grab Bag. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Only on ESPN Las Vegas. Ticket windows open. Let's give away two tickets to 7-0 Brew Oktoberfest. Big celebration. Four-day festival, September 29th to October 2nd. It's at the Orleans Arena. OrleansArena.com is where you can grab your own tickets. It's BOGO this week. Buy one ticket, get one free. Use the code BEER22, OrleansArena.com. Four-day festival, Oktoberfest, September 29th to October 2nd. Caller 7, caller 7, caller 7, 364-1100, 470-BREW, Oktoberfest. Stick your hand in there, Dave. So I haven't seen you in a few days, and we didn't get to react together to some of the news that came out around... Live the Saudis, golf league, PR arm, Tiger Woods, according to Greg Norman, turned down somewhere between 700 and $800 million to join the Saudis. It's interesting because I've been doing a lot of reading from other media outlets, including like not blog sites, but golf outlets and where Greg Norman, I hadn't. Because I'm, I'm just not paying attention. Like, it's become just so, okay, I'm tired of hearing it. Um, and I don't have golf columns set up on my tweet deck. But um, I'm just finding it interesting. I get it. I get Tiger Woods' stance that, he, you know, that he's on. He's just not going to do it. But that Greg Norman has come out and slammed the PGA Tour for all the partnerships, supposed sponsorships yeah. that, they're, that they're in dealings that they have with the Saudis. Yeah, Norman's like, they PGA does plenty of business with them. What's yeah. the problem? So all of a sudden now we're, we're on this holier than now soapbox. Doesn't make sense. I, I actually went to the PGA page and pulled. There's a there's a page where it says partners, and I was scrolling through, and I wasn't going to click every single website because I was I was on my phone, um, but it would be an interesting research project to go because I didn't see anything listed on there. That, and some of them they're listed. You know, this international. This, you know, based in Canada, this one based in the United States, this one, ba- one in Mexico. I didn't see any listed, but I'd like to know what they are if, in fact, they're in bed with the Saudis in some way, shape, or form. This is a headline. 
cat lovers <laughs> can try cat food inspired dishes at Fancy Feast Italian Pop Up. I'm having trouble meshing this one with I, uh, well, you know one of the brands of cat food yeah. and Italian food. What are we doing here? I had to throw that out there. I, I mean, I like cats. I'm a you're crazy a cat, cat guy. You are a cat lover. I, w- I was a little, I don't know what, I, I was taken back by this fancy feast, right? That's a brand. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have an Italian style trattoria called Gatto Bianco, mm-hmm. which means white cat. It'll be open for dinner on August 11th through the, and 12th. According to a news release from Purina, hmm. the human-friendly dishes were inspired by Fancy Feast's new Medley's cat food line, which feature options like beef ragu recipe with tomatoes and pasta in a savory sauce. Wait, that's the cat food? Yeah, it sounds like. Or is that the human food? Which which is you're not feeding cats pasta, are you? No, the dishes. No, well. That's what it sounds like. I know. It says beef ragu recipe with tomatoes and pasta and savory sauce for the cat with discerning taste. I I don't think that. Yeah, exactly. My cats are not. My cats are not eating pasta. Are your your cats eating gabagool? Uh, One of our old cats would have eaten gabagool pasta. Uh, That cat got in on hummus, bagels. Yeah. Yeah. Prosciutto would have been. They would have been fine. We went out to dinner uh, the other day to a find steakhouse for my stepfather's birthday and Jordan started ordering all the the appetizers. Yeah. <sighs> well, first of all, the di- the dish that he ordered, he was thought it was going to come out like a charcuterie type of plate, but he was like, "Oh yeah, send us the uh prosciutto." I was like, the prosciutto. And uh but it came out like melted in this bread kind of I don't know, it just wasn't what we were thinking. We were thinking like we were gonna be grabbing it like we did the night you and I went to dinner right, with the nice sure. provolone yeah. and the stinky provolone. Yeah, so Makes I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to a pop up a ta- first of all, yeah, that that right there, let alone a cat brand inspired restaurant, but a pop up Italian I don't know. I mean, they're limiting it to 16 guests. The people will be climbing all over themselves to get in there. There are a lot of crazy cat people. Yeah, man. They'll be book solid. Stick your hand in there, Dave. Last one. This sucks. This is sad news. Uh, Paige Beckers, who's one of the best players in college basketball, future WNBA superstar, I think it just landed, you know, really sizable NIL deals. UConn player, torn ACL, out for the year. That blows. Yeah such a good kid right i mean i really thought that she was going to sort of grow through her career sort of be like the next sabrina ionescu she just overwhelmed the college basketball world during her tenure prior to that kelsey plum right and being the all-time scorer i just thought she was going to take over and sort of set the trend for women basketball players with nil which she probably still did because right she was the first I believe woman athlete to, to sign a, ga- a deal with Gatorade. She led UConn to the uh, as a, to the Final Four in 2021. Now she missed part of last season yeah. with a knee injury. Now she's going to miss this entire upcoming season. She suffered it during a ba- a pickup basketball game. And the last thing I want to see on Twitter, social media, people ridiculing on what were they doing playing a pickup. That's what they do during the off season, dude. That's that's what they do. They train. They're. Pro- I mean, it's not like she was just you know 
being reckless, this is what they do. They train. It's just sad because she's, you know, she's she's always been every story you read, everything that comes out. I mean, just an ambassador. And I, I mean, I, I really pray that this this girl recovers. She gets the right physical therapy. She comes back strong and has a successful WNBA career. Thanks to Battleborn Injury Lawyers, Justin Watkins, Matt Hoffman and company for hosting the show today at the Battleborn Broadcast Center. If you need help, you need advice, 5709000 is the number.